you know, looking across the country, I realized that things have really been upended by impact of the pandemic. And, and we can't seem to get away from that. People have different expectations now for what it means to actually work work, you know, on campus. And there are really still many people are still struggling from just the aftermath of this. And, and so there are a lot more behavioral health and mental health issues, a lot more concerns about isolation. And so what we've started doing and uh, intended to start it earlier and then COVID came and so much of what we intended to do kind of got put off till later. But I think for us, it's been just trying to begin the measurement and the understanding of what, how, how our faculty and staff are engaged because without knowing a baseline, it's hard to know where to go from there. Welcome to Innovating Together, a podcast produced by the University Innovation Alliance. This is a podcast for busy people in higher education who are looking for the best ideas, inspiration, and leaders that will help you improve student success. I'm your host, Bridget Burns. Each week, I partner with a journalist to have a conversation with a sitting college president, chancellor, system leader, or someone in the broader ecosystem who's really an inspiring leader. And the goal is to have a conversation to distill their perspective and their insights gathered from their leadership journey. Our hope is that this is inspiring and gives you something to look forward to each week. This episode, my co-host is Inside Higher Ed co-founder and CEO, Doug Lederman. And today's guest is Garnett Stokes, who's president of the University of New Mexico, been president since 2017, previous stints at uh, Florida State and the University of Missouri, provost there, also stepped into interim presidencies there. So a lot of experience, different levels of higher ed administration, and look forward to having you on the program today. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. President Stokes, we're really excited to to have this conversation with you. I wanted to first kick it off by pointing out that just as Doug said, you have really risen to the occasion and stepped into leadership roles at multiple campuses. And this is a time when we need people willing to, to not back down when they're asked. But in both cases, you were already provost, executive vice president. You had a big job. You didn't need to say yes. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering if you can help us think through the, like you're thinking basically, when you see a challenge like that, when you're presented with, we need you to do this extra thing that's much harder and you don't have to. And our hope is that you can, you know, we're hoping that our audience who will someday possibly be asked, you can help give them perspective on how to process and think through those challenges and that opportunity. Thank you. I, that's a, that's an interesting question. You know, when I think about, you know, my role as a uh, provost at Florida State University, I can tell you that at that point in my career, I was not at all certain that I wanted to be a university president. And I certainly was taken aback by uh, losing the person who had hired me when he went on to Penn State. But I will say that as soon as I realized that he would be leaving, I saw it as a growth opportunity for me. I really thought that it would be an opportunity for me to understand what it means to actually be where the buck stops in terms of decisions. So I, that was really how I approached that decision at Florida State. I knew that institution had quite a lot going on at that time. I mean, it's kind of amazing to step in and have so much hit you all at once. But I 
I really felt like that I had been there long enough that I could provide the stability the institution needed to continue moving forward. And I think that's what they're looking for when they name an interim. So I, I felt like it was a, a tremendous experience for me to be able to serve in that role. And it gave me perspectives that I really wouldn't have had as a provost. So whether I went on to a presidency myself or continued as provost after that, I believed that it would it would strengthen my ability to serve higher education. That's great. And we we've definitely heard that where folks would never consider the job or think they can't do the job and that the interim role kind of demystifies it. And it really, it, it like, well, I guess, I, I guess it's not as if, you know, or, you know, I can. And it's interesting that often we, when you look nationally, you see interim roles, they are not always used to cultivate a pipeline of future talent. We sometimes use a bench of people who've already done the job and we're missing such an opportunity to instill confidence and opportunity for a whole a new generation of potential leaders. So I love that, that you didn't back down, but also that it did exactly what we we thought it would, which is give you the perspective you could do this job. That's true. It's, yeah. it's interesting. I'd, I'd love to dig, get a little bit more sense of sort of what you found once you, you know, having not expected necessarily want a presidency, what did you find once you got into the role that persuaded you presumably to go on and, and actually seek it yourself? The one, the only, before I get to that though, the one thing, and I've been thinking a lot about this is about how little succession planning higher education does. And uh, it's weird. There have been a handful of cases recently, and we're talking about doing a story about it, about places that are actually literally deciding, oh, we're going to, we think we have the current, the successor already in place. It's not, doesn't happen that way. It usually is like starting from scratch practically each time. And there's often an interim in the running or frequently, or a, or a an internal candidate, at least in the running, but I don't know. It's it's something I've really been thinking a lot about. But anyway, what was it once you got into the role that made you that persuaded you that this was something you would want to keep doing on a more permanent basis, maybe somewhere else? Well, I, you know, I didn't immediately decide that that was what I wanted to do. I mean, I spent several months uh, in the interim presidency, faced a lot of challenges there, but also just incredibly, I, I really enjoyed some of the external work, the work with donors that I was engaged in, the work with alumni, which I was able to do to a much greater extent in the, in the interim presidency. So that was a good thing to realize that I enjoyed that aspect of the work. But I, you know, also then left Florida State to go to another provost job at University of Missouri. So I was excited about a, a new opportunity at a, at a Midwestern university. I had spent my career in the Southeast. So obviously I didn't jump immediately to a presidency, but you know, I think it's just because the provost job was uh, at Missouri was appealing to me. And it wasn't really until I was at Missouri that I decided that yes, in fact, I would like to pursue a presidency. And so I think it was having experience under my belt at two institutions, also having faced quite a number of issues at both of those institutions that led me to think, you know, if I can get myself through this, I can I can certainly do a presidency. That's so great. And I, I do think, one, it's, it's really valuable that you have been a strong leader at multiple institutions because we have too many who have not experienced the different, the different complexities and, and that if we spend too much time in just one institution, we believe the story 
of the place. And it's really helpful that you went to multiple places that have had multiple, you know that the story we tell ourselves about why we can't do something is not actually true. Uh, and you definitely bring that to the University of New Mexico. And But, I, but the fact that you bring that kind of deep bench and you've been frankly tested by fire. You've got this resilience that I that I, I definitely see in your leadership style. I wanted to go to your leader. Oh yeah, go ahead. If you wanted to respond to that. I was just going to say that, you know, it's interesting that I, I had been at the University of Georgia for most of my career. I was there more than 30 years. And so, and I remember being asked by a provost when I was getting ready to do a higher education administration leadership program, whether I'd ever consider leaving the University of Georgia. And I said, well, I really haven't had to. But now I look back and I think when people are truly planning to take on leadership roles, the decision to go to different institutions can be an important part of the growth that allows you to be more successful. Yeah, that's great. I am Ray Magliozzi, co-host of NPR's Car Talk. If you're working to solve the biggest challenges in higher education, you've come to the right podcast. And if you're looking for a student retention platform proven to get results, check out Mainstay.com. I may be biased because the CEO of Mainstay just happens to be my son. So instead of taking my word for it, you can trust the research they've done with Georgia State, Brown, and Yale as proof that Mainstay improves enrollment, retention, and well-being. Visit Mainstay.com research to learn more. Well, I, I wanted to go a little further in that I'd like to know about your leadership style. I'm sure people tell you what they, you know, you've, you've picked up anecdotes or, work, you know, hear people talk about your leadership style. But I'm just wondering, is there any one person who you initially picked up the most of about how you wanted to lead? I think that, you know, that can be any number of examples, but I'm just wondering where you learned the most about leadership that has informed your style. It's really difficult to think about one person that may have influenced my thinking about leadership. But, you know, my field is industrial and organizational psychology. And I worked in a, I was in a graduate, a faculty member in a graduate program where I had a colleague who in fact studied leadership. And when I think back on, you know, my thinking about leadership, one of the things that I talked to Carl Coonert about uh, was authenticity. And so I, I think that it's kind of natural for me to, to be authentic, but that my conversations with my colleague led me to think more about how important that was. And over time, I would say that, I, I mean, I've, I've learned something from really every leader that, I, that I've ever worked with, whether it was the program chair when I was a faculty member, whether it was the head of the department, whether it was the dean that I worked for while I was department head. And then later, you know, as I watched college presidents at my own institutions and elsewhere. So there are things you learn. It's interesting, the things you learn to do and the things you learn. Mm, I'm glad I, I'm glad I didn't have to learn that lesson myself. That latter one is particularly helpful. We've been thinking about and actually writing a good bit about authenticity and given how closely presidents and other leaders are watched every move, are there limits to one's ability to be authentic? And are there, if so, is that um, difficult? Do you have to be sort of selective about what sticks and what stays and then maybe what things you might sand off or, or 
stop doing or avoid doing because of potential risks? A fascinating question. You know, when I think about authenticity, I really think about trying to bring my full self to conversations with people, uh, whether it's in a group or whether it's with talking to individuals. And so, but, you know, I do realize that, that there are limitations to information that you share. And, and at times that, you know, I've had to learn how much to share in conversations, in public, et cetera. So I think authenticity is perhaps more complex than most people realize. And plus we all like, you know, there's a certain level, but you're also, I mean, you're a boss, Doug, you know, that there's, you're not really actually friends with, you know, you, you want to cultivate that relationship with your employees, but like eh, at the end of the day, Doug's still a bad guy. Uh, just kidding. Uh, not really. I'm sure you're wonderful. And everyone, but yeah, you have to, you have, you have to remain to some degree a little guarded, which is unfortunate. So I am interested. I did want to know about what has been surprising to you about your career. I'm, I'm just curious if like 40 years ago, if you told yourself you're going to be the president of a major research university and have led multiple other institutions, like I just, how blown away are you? How surprised are you in that moment? I would say the fact that I have had this career is the biggest surprise of all. You know, I certainly didn't grow up uh, with an expectation that I was going to even go to college. I'm a first generation student. My parents certainly had their high school degrees, but they really didn't talk much about going to, about even going to college. So to realize that every step of the way, something pushed me to decide to go to college, something pushed me to decide to become a faculty member. Often it was circumstances in my life, or sometimes at later stages, it was guidance where, for example, you know, a, a, a colleague and a mentor said to me, well, you know, you're going to be the next head of psychology here. At, and that was at the University of Georgia. It's like, really? I, I hadn't thought about it. And so when I look back, I realized that I would have never dreamed this for me. I had a different thought about what my life would be like when I was young. And so that I would say the entire career is the surprise. It's great. It also makes me wonder about, Doug, I'm sure, like psychology and leadership. I'm sure that you, you have to sit in meetings all the time where you know, you'll keep your poker face, but knowing your expertise and your discipline, it's got to be fascinating, is all I'll say. Fascinating is the, is the right word at times. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people do ask me if my field of study in industrial organizational psychology has helped me as a leader. And, and one of the things we know about expertise is that you sometimes don't realize where it's coming from. Once you have it, you know, it's, it's just the way you operate. And so I don't always realize the extent to which my background uh, leads me to look at a university and its organization in the way that I do. You know, I think my, my focus uh, really is on trying to create success in the organization and in the people and building workplaces that where people can thrive. I mean, my dissertation was on kind of life, work and non-work satisfaction. So that thinking about people's lives and wanting them to be successful at work seems like something that Matt has been something that matters to me for a long time. And I realize it does lead me to, it does lead to certain approaches to higher education. Yeah. It's interesting. I was going to ask you, following up on one strand of it, about sort of the difference. I was going to ask sort of what you studied and which types of organizations. And I was going to ask you about the ways in which in universities and the sort of higher education environment maybe differ and what's special about that. But actually, what you just said 
seems particularly timely given all the concerns we've been talking about and we've been writing about and I'm sure Bridget's uh, institutions are focused on about sort of higher education faculty and staff satisfaction and burnout and all the other issues. So I'm, I'm curious what your, I don't know, sort of diagnosis is and, and sort of maybe some thoughts on kind of what, what steps you've taken to try and work on employee satisfaction, particularly at a time where, I don't know, we see people increasingly asking hard questions about the values of their employers and whether they're able to carry out the work that focus on mission and people's desire for what they want from work. I don't know, just that's a broad question, but I'm just curious, what's most acute for you right now? Well, I, I will say that I, I can only speak for my current institution in terms of the challenges that we face, but you know, looking across the country, I realize that things have really been upended by impact of the pandemic, and, and we can't seem to get away from that. People have different expectations now for what it means to actually work work, you know, on campus. And they're really still, many people are still struggling from just the aftermath of this. And, and so there are a lot more behavioral health and mental health issues, a lot more concerns about isolation. And so what we've started doing and uh, intended to start it earlier and then COVID came and so much of what we intended to do kind of got put off till later. But I think for us, it's been just trying to begin the measurement and the understanding of what, how, how our faculty and staff are engaged, because without knowing a baseline, it's hard to know where to go from there. And so that's what we've been doing. We've done some engagement surveys with the intention of really intervening to help our faculty and staff feel good about where they are and feel productive and recognize their their impact and that we're our how much we value them. That's the struggle is the communication of people's value. And what we know from and it's no surprise you know one of the biggest factors that influences how people feel about about their work is kind of what is the supervisory relationship and so having the resources to make sure that we are helping supervisors know how to lead that takes a intensive work and putting the resources in to try to help supervisors better serve as leaders you know, we don't necessarily do a great job training people on how to lead. And so, and, and its importance in the institution goes down to every level of the organization. And so kind of intervening there is, you know, something that I think, you know, we're not all in the same place, but I'm recognizing just how important it is. That's great. And I, uh, I'll say, Doug, that I have talked to folks on the ground at, at a variety of institutions and the reputation that President Stokes has, has developed is someone who listened on this issue immediately and didn't need to be convinced. And there are a lot of leaders who it was kind of like, hey, buck up, you know, works hard, didn't take it seriously, but that she took it seriously immediately. And people definitely felt that at the University of New Mexico, which the, the truth is no one's figured it out completely, right? Like it's not, it's not figured out. But I do want to underscore that this issue of not teaching people how to lead and manage, it is so huge because I mean, how many talented researchers do we have to lose who, because they are exceptional researchers, they get to do something, they get, you know, get great grants or, you know, doing great, great work. And then they are put in charge of some people, but not trained to, to 
support them. And then their center gets shut down, right? Like we, we keep doing this where we lose incredible potential because we have not figured out that like actually we're taking people out of their zone of genius and yes. we're now asking them to do a thing that is frankly the hardest thing for managing is the hardest thing. It is like nobody likes it. <laughs> so it is, I just want to underscore that could not be more important for us to actually like invest in that. Well, I do uh, think you. some people do enjoy it. You know, that's what attracted me was realizing that I actually enjoyed it. But I know in academia, it's considered the dark side. I mean, they still talk about the dark side uh, when one is willing to take on leadership roles. But I, I frankly found it rewarding to be able to help people succeed. I mean, that's what leaders are able to do. It's one of the, for me, one of the most fulfilling aspects of the work, the ability to pave the way for other people to get things out of their way so that they, or to get them the resources and to help them, you know, achieve their own dreams. That's great. What are you most proud of as a leader is something we wanted to, you know, there's a lot, it's, you, you've accomplished a great deal and you've led in so many places. Is there one moment for you that is kind of like the, the thing that you're like, yep, that's the one I'm most proudest of. I don't immediately come to mind. There doesn't immediately come to mind one thing that I'm most proud of. I think in general, what I am most proud of is that I have not backed down from making, you know, a couple of tough decisions. And that I'm proud of, that I faced some things head on, took the bruises and the bumps for doing it and kept going. And I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I, I would not have thought early in my career that someone would have characterized me as steadfast and just creating stability. It's not, I wouldn't have thought of that. And yet over my career, I've discovered that that is what many people, you know, see in me. And I appreciate that and I'm proud that those are some characteristics that people appreciate. Those are great characteristics to be known for. In the few minutes we have left, maybe switch, shift to the kind of questions we usually close with, which are around the advice that you've gotten that has most helped you in your career. And then if, uh, if, if it's different, uh, the advice that you tend to give our audience, people in our in our audience, uh, who are the sort of potential uh, successors to you and your and this generation, are there? I don't know if those things are the same or different, but interested in both of those. Well, I I would say I I learned I learned early on. Someone stepped in. I was an assistant professor. I had a graduate student who, at the last moment, was asked to teach a class just as he was about to take his preliminary exams. And so I got fired up and I went to the person who made the assignment and I, I said, I, you know, I, I let them know my displeasure. And my department head took me aside and said, you know, Garnet, there are better ways to actually get things done and convey something. And I think that was a, an early and important lesson for me um, that you know, yes, things happen, but how you handle them really matters. And that was a piece of advice. Other advice I've gotten though was, you know, and that I really counted on, it's really made a, made a difference to me is to try to leave options open. The truth is the world of higher ed is small and people don't forget. It is amazing to me how small this world is and how burning bridges can really be harmful 
to one's career. Those relationships that you you don't cultivate or that those it, those conflicts that you don't manage well can come back to bite you later. And so I often convey that to, I did that with my graduate students. And then I certainly talked to, to people who are aspiring to leadership roles. You know, I will talk about that small world, about the importance of really demonstrating your integrity being honest with people and not hiding what your motives are for something, explaining the decisions that you make and how important that can be in maintaining relationships, even when, you know, they are by their nature and structure, rocky and competitive. That's great. Those are good pieces of advice for folks. My last question is about if there's a book or I don't know if it's a movie or anything that you you know, that you find yourself most often recommending when people are looking for leadership guidance or trying to navigate and you're trying to give advice? Is there anyone that you found yourself handing out more often or saying you should probably take a look at this one book? That's interesting. I, 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 I don't, often read the leadership books that much. I mean, I, I've read, I, I do encourage people to look at uh, you know, the books that are out there. If they're looking at higher education, there are a number of books out there that are helpful in understanding the ways, you know, different presidents navigated, you know, leadership. And, you know, so I just point people in the direction of trying to understand the conflicts and the challenges that other leaders have faced so that you just learn from the experience of others rather than having to, you know, create it all, you know, uh, create it all yourself. I, in my career though, what's been most important for me is trying to figure out strategies for being more effective and getting the work done. And so the things I end up reading are getting things done and how to how to have good habits that allow you to balance, you know, in these jobs, it's about trying to find a way to stay physically healthy and mentally healthy and get the work done. And so right now I'm reading a book on how, how we form our habits and things like that are the things that have made a difference for me. And every leader has their own particular set of issues that they need to work on to be more effective. You know, some things come naturally, some things don't. And so it, I think it's really about figuring out, you know, what are the, what are the things that each person needs to work on and, and finding, you know, examples of that, that one can learn from books or movies, et cetera. I don't know if you're talking about tiny habits or any of the, the habit stacking books, but yeah, no, I mean, optimization, it's so difficult with email and calendar. Like that's the actual stuff. That's what you, that's what people need. So <laughs> thank you so much, President Stokes. This has been delightful to get to know you a bit more and to learn a bit about your leadership style. By the way, when you, when you said to, instead of reading leadership books to learn from the lives of those leaders, I was like, basically she's saying read Inside Higher Ed you know, where Greg's <laughs> out there telling the stories of what not to do, what to do. Just kidding. Anyway, it's been lovely to have you. And as always, Doug, thanks for being a great co-host. And for those of you at home, we will see you next week. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.